Who are Zebulun and Naphtali? And why does the first reading in the Gospel care about them so much, these lands? We know that Jesus comes to save all of Israel. He comes to the house of Israel first, he says. But historically, whenever Jesus advertises this, and one of the reasons why it seems like the Messiah couldn't come, is because there's a big problem with what we call the lost tribes of Israel. That is, there are 12 tribes of Israel. Ten of them have been scattered across the world. The reason was because in the Assyrian exile in the 700 BCs, whenever the Assyrian Empire came into Israel, they knocked out 10 of the tribes. And those tribes intermarried with pagan peoples. So that now this is why if Jesus is going to save all of Israel, he has to save the Gentiles too. That is, he has to save the whole world. So who are Zebulun and Naphtali? They are the two tribes that were kicked out first by the Assyrians. That is, they're the two first groups of people that are estranged from God's people. They're the two, the first that, you could say, forget God out of those ten. And so it's incredibly significant that the first place that Jesus goes to begin his ministry is the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, a place where there was great despair. The reason why he got kicked out is because geographically, the Assyrian army is coming down and they're saying this is the outermost rim and so this is a place getting pillaged and burned and all of the horrible things. So that this is a people that is accustomed to tragedy. That is accustomed to being estranged from God, accustomed to despair. And so the question that I want to ask on this Word of God Sunday that the church calls this third Sunday of Ordinary Time is how do we who often forget God be converted by the Word of God? And then how do those that we know that have forgotten God a long time ago, as these people have, be converted by the Word of God? How do we participate in that? So I'm going to just look at three observations that Jesus does in converting, you could say, these two sets of brothers in the gospel. First, these two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John. What are they doing? We know that they're fishers, but... What Jesus does is he does not kind of sit on the bank of Galilee and like cross his arms, kick his feet out a little bit, just wait for these men to finish fishing. No, Jesus interrupts them. Simon and Andrew, they are casting their nets. James and John, they are mending their nets. In the middle of what they're doing, Jesus interrupts them. We forget God often. 
We forget God often because we plunge ourselves into an overstimulated world, going from activity to activity, so immersed in the things of the world that we don't look up. And this is how we often forget Him. I'd like to read this uh, quote from this book, Prayer and Practice by Romani, Romano Wardini. Modern man is in danger of losing his innermost center, which gives stability to his personality and direction to his way of life. Behind the facade of talk and ceaseless activities, he becomes unsure of himself beneath his self-assured persona. There is an ever-increasing anxiety to counteract this trend, he must rediscover the point of inner support from which he can issue forth into the world and to which he may return again and again. We are all in danger of losing our innermost center because the moment that we stop, Romano Wardini says, going from thing to thing, man finds himself despondent or despair, wondering, where have I been? He feels detached even from himself and certainly from God. Because God is the foundation of his existence. We tack on all these different activities, all these different things, these stimuli on to our day-to-day life because it almost feels like if we were to stop that we would cease to exist. And so what Jesus does is that he interrupts the ceaseless activity of Simon and Andrew, of James and John, in the middle of their fishing. So while that needs to happen with us, it also needs to happen with those, we need to realize that, with those who have forgotten God for a long time. We can't expect that the person, and we know it well, the person that maybe went to Catholic school their whole life growing up and maybe went to CCD and has been to Mass but has since forgotten God, we can't expect that person to just come up to us and politely ask while they're running away from God on a day-to-day basis, hey, tell me about your faith. Why should I consider it and why should I change my life? Why would we expect that? We can't. We have to know that we must have the courage to interrupt someone in their running away from God. Interrupt a life of ceaseless activity so that they can come to encounter Christ. The second point that Christ does in this interaction with these two sets of brothers, there's obviously something missing that's very impactful in this interaction with these two brothers because you don't just start fish, stop fishing. Someone says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. You say, oh, okay, I'll do it. You know, there's something missing here and it can't be communicated. It's the silence of the word of God made flesh. It is simply Jesus's presence. It is simply his presence. There is something so persuasive and compelling about him that these men feel as if 
whenever they stopped in the middle of their ceaseless activity, that perhaps time stopped too. That they were in the presence of presence itself. God made man. Romano Wardini, continuing his book, talks about this idea of prayer as collectedness. That we live in this world that's littered with stimuli, and so we're so spread out. But whenever we collect ourselves in the presence of the one who is present, now we encounter who we truly are. This is why men such as John Paul II and women such as Mother Teresa were able to be in the presence of, and it seemed like time stopped. It seemed like there was no one else in the room. And incidentally, why they were late for a bunch of stuff. But this is something that is incredibly attainable, but it's incredibly difficult too. Because we know that every time that we go to pray, that everything else seems so dang important. I have to make a to-do list. I don't even make to-do lists, but apparently when I go to pray, I got to do it. You know, oh, I got to send this text, create this Facebook event. I don't even get on Facebook, but apparently now I have to do it, then I have to go pray. Like, like the Grinch trying to make plans, like, I can't cancel that again. You know, dinner with myself, I can't do it. It's incredibly difficult because to look at the things of the world all spread out and dispersed is an easy thing. A squirrel can do it. You know, that's, what, that's like the existence of a squirrel. He's just going from thing to thing. It's incredibly difficult. It's angelic to be able to look up and to keep our minds on God and to be present. But this presence is something that, again, is so compelling and is so persuasive that if we can be present to those who have forgotten God, then perhaps we can be the one point of contact. One of um, the most compelling homilies I've ever heard, priests had talked about the good thief, also known in tradition as St. Dismas. And that St. Dismas was a man always on the run. From thing to thing, maybe robbing someone here, starting a revolution there. And for the first time in his life that he is still is when he is nailed to the cross. And it's the time that he must look over to his right and see Jesus Christ interacting with his mother from the cross. And in that, in that moment, that timelessness and that presence that he would go from jeering at Christ to asking Christ to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. There's something about the presence of a holy person that is compelling and persuasive, more so than any words that could be demonstrated. The third point is Jesus' command to follow him. We forget sometimes, or maybe we don't understand, this idea of Jesus being the light of the world. Maybe we, th 
per, perhaps perceive that if Jesus is the light of the world, you know, he illuminates the darkness. That the moment I start praying, or the moment I start picking up that spiritual book, that it's going to answer all my problems. I will no longer sin, won't be tempted the way that I have been. My questions about reality, my questions about the church will be answered, and everything's going to be okay. But Jesus is not the light of the world in that way, to where he lights up the whole room of the soul. No, so often Jesus gives us just enough light for the day. This is from uh, a quote from the encyclical Lumen Fidei. That faith is not a light which scatters all of our darkness, but a lamp which guides our steps in the night and suffices for the journey. Faith is not a light which scatters all our darkness, but a lamp which guides our steps in the night and suffices for the journey. We so often quit prayer and give up prayer whenever it doesn't answer all the questions. But God gives us just enough light for the next step. Why? Because if he were to light up the whole room and give us all the answers, well, we would despair. Or we would become prideful. There are other spiritual creatures for whom the, the whole room was lit up. And these are the angels. Some immediately choose to be with the Lord. Others in their pride, immediately choose to fall away from the Lord. And for those angels that we now call demons, there is no hope of repentance. Because they know all things, making their choice eternal. God gives us just enough light for the day. Why? Because God is merciful towards us. Now, on the other end of that, to the person we know that, again, has fallen away from the church, yet thinks that God has lit up the room for them. Man, I went to Catholic school my whole life. You know, I went to CCD. I know that God loves me. It's like, great, okay. I learned that in third grade too. You know, that we can be under that illusion. What is Jesus asking us to do in relationship to that person? It is comical how ill-equipped the disciples are for ministry. I had to be in seminary for six years before I could be ordained a priest, and even begin priestly ministry. Jesus doesn't even introduce himself to these two brothers whenever he says, follow me. And then shortly after that, they are sent out two by two to go and preach Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They haven't even learned how to pray yet from Jesus. They don't know, they're not even clear about exactly who he is. Only much later does he sit down and say, who do they say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And only one of them gets it right. The point is, is that we can be so dang concerned about 
well, I'm not ready to bring someone along and introduce them to church. I just don't know enough. I haven't been built up enough. But what Jesus tells these two sets of brothers is what we should be willing to tell our brothers, which is, follow me. I don't know exactly who this mysterious man is. I don't know exactly what God is calling me to do. But if you haven't been going to Mass, hey, I can go to Mass with you. If you haven't been praying, I'll tell you what. Why don't we both commit to praying every day? If you've been struggling because of certain technology use, whatever, say what, I'll give that up with you. That what we can do evangelistically is just to say, I don't know the answers, but I'll do it with you. Follow me. We'll do this together. This is what it means to belong to church. I don't have to have the answers because I know that Jesus and his church do and that we can remain faithful to him. And so encountering the word of God, we ask that Jesus can interrupt our busy and hectic life and give us the courage to interrupt others. And that we can be present to God so that we can be present to our neighbors and then be able to follow the daily light that God gives us in prayer so that we can have the courage to say to our brothers, Follow me. I will go to him with you.